program. Remember the old bromide that you can't fight City Hall? Well, imagine how tough it is to take on the U.S. Navy, especially if the cause is about the condition of whales and those fighting are an environmental lawyer and a Navy whistleblower. I'm sure most of you have heard parts of this story in news reports and on 60 Minutes, but my guest Joshua Horwitz tells the full story of this David versus Goliath battle of the military-industrial complex versus the environment. Joshua Horwitz is a senior fellow at the Ocean Foundation and the co-founder and publisher of Living Planet Books. It is my pleasure to welcome Joshua Horwitz here to talk about War of the Whales, a true story. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to have you here. First of all, talk a little bit about how this story begins in the Bahamas with, with the beaching of this group of whales. I will. And by, as I begin, though, I want to just say I'm glad to be on your show because this is really a California story as much as anything because the two protagonists you referred to are both, uh, you know, died in the world Californians <laughs> in terms of where they were born and grew up. And, uh, and of course, a lot of the drama plays out in, in California, California right. it begins really the the turning point or the, the 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 sort of early climax of the story is in the Bahamas. It takes place in the deepest underwater canyon in the world, the Grand Bahama Canyon, and uh, the Navy at, is is doing midnight war game exercises in this uh, deep underwater canyon, which uh, they didn't know largely because they didn't hadn't done any advanced research that was also home to a resident population of beaked whales that had lived there for millions of years. And they uh, have evolved to, to dive deep in this canyon. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the result of this group, this battle group of uh, using high-intensity active sonar moving through this, uh, through this channel, uh, stranded 17 uh, whales of three different species and uh, was at the time the largest uh, mass stranding of uh, multi-species mass stranding of whales ever recorded. And initially it wasn't clear to everyone what was the cause until Ken Balcom enters the picture and takes these these brains of the whales to, to be studied. Right. Well, the mystery was this particular type of whale, which are called beaked whales, which people don't know very well because they spend so much of their time diving at great depths. They're the deepest diving marine mammals. They can dive to over to like two miles down. Um, but they do not strand. A lot of, of whales and dolphins do strand. Pilot whales and dolphins commonly strand. But beaked whales almost never strand, at least alive. And uh, these were all live stranded, though many of them did not survive. And so it was a mystery, and Ken Balcom had a unique background to be able to assess the likely cause because he is not only a specialist in this, in this community of whales, which he had been studying for 10 years right there in the Bahamas, but he was also a former Navy sonar operator. So he put two and two together. He also knew the people to call at the Office of Naval Research to get an a investigative team down immediately. And most importantly, he knew how to uh, retrieve specimens, which in this case are the, the heads of, of the whales. And, and uh, it's actually quite difficult to cut off a whale head and get it into a freezer in a matter of hours to preserve a specimen against the elements. And this whole arena of forensic pathology of whales, the idea of finding an expert in that area at Harvard, talk about that. Well, uh, the National Marine Fisheries Service is, is charged with investigating unexplained uh, mortality events 
UMEs, as they're known, um, in terms of stranded marine mammals. It's under the uh, Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972. Uh, this is in the Bahamas, so it was a little more complicated, but uh, because the Navy was involved, uh, they sent down their sort of head pathologist, a woman named Darlene Ketton, who's based up in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And she had perfected a, a, a technique, had really created a technique for... Uh, using CT scans, this was you know, somewhat early days in CT scans when she figured out that you could do uh, much more efficient and less destructive uh, assessment of a head uh, by first scanning it with a CT scanner. So she actually uh, got permission from Harvard Medical School where she was a uh, otorologist and working on you know, ears. She was an ear specialist, both human and whales. And so after hours, in the middle of the night, she was allowed to use the CT scanners there to uh, scan specimens. So Ken Belcom and his, his wife and, and research partner, Diane Claridge, had to get these frozen heads from the Bahamas all the way up to, to Harvard Medical School before they thawed out on one long sprint of a day. And that really did tell the tale that, you know, three in the morning they were able to see the, the hemorrhages and the blood pooled on both sides of the brain, which were the telltale signs of what's known as acoustic trauma, which is intense sound that's so intense that it ruptures uh, blood vessels in the brain. And talk a little bit about Balcom putting all the pieces together, that he had seen Navy vessels in the area and, and really immediately understood what was happening here. Yeah, well, again, because he had this really unique, I, I was just, I found this story irresistible because it was one of those one in a million things that only happens in novels or in movies, <laughs> but this is a true story, of course, and he was probably the only person in the world who both knew enough about beaked whales and above, about the Navy and had histories in both where he would be able to put the pieces together on the ground, at least have a strong suspicion of what was going on, know who to call. And so, yeah, he went up in a plane initially to spot for whales because the Bahamas is actually a string of islands. And some of the whales came ashore right at his research station, uh, but he knew there must be others in the uh, outlying islands, which there were. So he went up in a small plane to find them in search of other specimens on day two when it was too late to try to rescue any more whales. And that's when he saw a, a destroyer, a U.S. Navy destroyer, in the channel, and he knew it to be the kind that used uh, the most intense active sonar systems. Um, and he had certainly read in the literature about the connection between intense active sonar systems and mass strandings of whales, though no one had ever been able, able to preserve a, a physical evidence trail, which is really his major contribution, was to both assess the situation, the good fortune to be there, but also the wherewithal to, to, to get these specimens off the hot beach and into a deep freeze within and talk, a day. And talk about Joel Reynolds, how he enters the story, how he becomes part of this story. So, so, so this stranding, mass stranding in the Bahamas was on the spring of 2000, but for Five years prior to this, uh, Joel Reynolds, who at the time was the head of uh, NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council's Los Angeles office, and he had, he had uh, grown up in the neighborhood of Los Angeles and Riverside, um, he had been sort of uh, dogging the, the Navy's trail on this issue uh, because he had done his own sort of uh, forensic, not forensic using uh, uh, whale specimens, but looking at the record of mass strandings coinciding with uh, Navy exercises, both, both in, in U.S. waters and in the Mediterranean, around the world, really. And uh, he was really the Paul Revere who was who was calling attention to this, and, and the Navy was saying, well, where's the proof? And even the Marine Mammal 
uh, scientists who are, by the way, mostly in the employee of the Navy, were also saying, well, if this were the case, we would have seen this. But the, the reality is that uh, most of these Navy exercises happen in far, far off remote places and the specimens don't last long on in tropical beaches. So in any case, he had been uh, threatening to sue and, and, and sort of badgering the Navy you know, over its noncompliance with the 1972 Marine Mammal Protection Act and other uh, decades-old uh, Environmental Protection Acts. And so uh, when he heard about this stranding and, more importantly, about the collection of specimens by a knowledgeable uh, marine mammal scientist, he uh, immediately uh, realized that this could be the, the physical evidence trail, the smoking gun, if you will, that he had been waiting for for five years. What did Balcom and Reynolds think they could accomplish initially in this? Did they want the sonar work to stop entirely? What, what was their goal initially? Well, again, throughout, this is, a, this is an ongoing, I should say, there's a recent case that was settled in favor of NRDC just four months ago in Hawaii and California. So this has been going on, including you know, the 1995 first uh, letters from, from Balcom, I'm sorry, from Reynolds to the Navy. It's been going on for 20 years. So I, I think it's important to stress, this has always been about war games, about training exercises. Obviously, you know, the Navy, like any military arm, needs to train. Um, the issue has always been, do they need to train in, in uh, waters that are home to endangered or even non-endangered marine mammal species? And um, so, you know, the law forbids it, but um, again, the Navy often gets special deference from from judges and whatnot. So it's been a long legal battle over over that issue. It's nobody's ever contested their right to use sonar in battle situations. Uh, it's really the the focus has been on you know do do whales need to die for 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 target practice for for training uh, purposes and. Um, and that's, you know, that's been the crux of it. Talk a little bit about it from a legal perspective, the legal battles that really were, were fought in this story. Well, you know, to me, when, when we talk about legal battles, it's often it's easy to lose sight of the fact that, you know, the law is only applied when individuals decide to, to do so. And, and the National Marine Fisheries Service, which is really supposed to be the watchdog agency, had dropped the ball. And it's a simple matter of politics. I live here in Washington, D.C., so it's kind of second nature to me. It's not a shock to me that a, an agency with a tiny, tiny budget and very little enforcement muscle was... Um, you know, captive, if you will, are certainly not doing its job of policing the U.S. Navy, which is an enormous, uh, it's the most powerful Navy in the world. It's got billions and billions, a hundred billion, you know, a lot of, a huge budget. And in fact, they own all the scientists. The Navy has, uh, I, one of the ironies of the story is that the Navy uh, really invented the, 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 the discipline of marine mammal science and cetacean science because nobody else really cared enough to investigate them. And the, and the reason the Navy cared is because they have, there are such acoustically sensitive animals. They've evolved over 40 million years to become, to be able to hunt and navigate in the dark. And that's something the Navy wanted to learn more about and really wanted to reverse engineer. So it turns out the Navy, the real revelation to me was the Navy had been, uh, promoting whale science almost single-handedly since the late 50s. And so when it finally did get to court, I, I wanted to insert that because, you know, by the time Joel Reynolds took them to court, uh, the real struggle wasn't over so much the legal issues, which have always been fairly cut and dried. You have to observe, you know, the Marine Mammal Protection Act protects marine mammals from, from this kind of harm. However, all the best scientists worked for the Navy. And so really this story became 
moved for me a story about the the struggle for the for the soul and the conscience of the of the science community because it's very difficult if you're doing expensive uh, research using you know often navy equipment, navy ships, and certainly navy funding uh, to go into court and testify against your paymaster is a very very tough thing to do. So um, that really is sort of what it came down to in the end, as much as the legal issues, which are more, you know, technical and administrative. But it's interesting, all the success that Reynolds had in court up until it got to to the Supreme Court. Well, the thing that's remarkable, Ken Balcom, the marine scientist, and, and Joel Reynolds, the environmental attorney, are both remarkable individuals in their own way. Um, and they're very, very different. So they're, what appealed to me is a storyteller, again, they're the, they're the ultimate odd couple. Uh, he's a real maverick. He always goes his own way. He's the kind of guy who's a, he's a field researcher. He loves being out on the water for hours and hours and hours at a time, waiting for a whale to surface that he can document and, and record. And, and uh, he really, I think it's fair to say, prefers the company of whales to humans. And so that's his MO. He's very expert at what he does, but it's not an interpersonal sort of skill set he has. Um, and Joel Reynolds, on the other hand, is, 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 a, uh, is not only a, a very creative uh, and smart lawyer, he's also someone who can work with a wide range of, of individuals. He knows how to talk to scientists. He can recruit celebrities to a media campaign. Um, he can deal with the press. So he had a whole different tool set, and um, uh, he really, I think, his the key to his success has been his pragmatism, and he and his 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 doggedness, and that goes for Balcom. The one thing that that these two very unlike each other characters have in common is is their uh, persistence. They've both been in this fight for 20 years. Their adversaries on the Navy side have cycled through the agencies and then through the you know, through the Admiralty many times, but they've, they're still there fighting the fight. So I think, uh, you know, Reynolds did have an incredible run. He won, uh, like eight, he and NRDC, he had a legal team working with him eventually, um, at NRDC, but they, they won a string of cases that was eventually one of the cases was appealed all the way to the Supreme court, which, uh, in 2008, and today is still the most conservative panel in the country, the one that's most likely to be sympathetic to the Navy. And so that's why the Bush administration um, appealed it up. But, um, you know, that was one uh, of many cases. And as I say, that legal battle continues, or rather the war continues. And uh, that's sort of why I called it War of the Whales, because it's both a legal battle, but a kind of a contest between the environmental culture, if you will, and the, and the military one. You talk about their dogged determination. It's interesting that even after the legal setback of sorts at the Supreme Court level in the case you talk about, that they were able to really turn that to their advantage in many ways. It created greater awareness of the cause, and they were effective in using that for, for many uh, public relations points of view. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that makes Reynolds so effective is he realizes that these are war, these wars are fought, you know, in the in the legal courtroom, uh, the, you know, the battlefield of the courtroom, but also uh, the court of public opinion, and that's what drives politicians, what drives the Navy, frankly, um, and and not to mention their membership. NRDC has has a million members, and they can be very influential when rallied to a cause, and and when a, a case does rise to the Supreme Court, and they had won at every at every circuit going up to that, um, it does get more coverage. The national media paid attention to a story that had been treated somewhat like a local story in California and elsewhere, 
And uh, so, so you know, he was able to do that. And again, you know, I think the lesson I take away from it is uh, it's the victory. Be- belongs to the to the one who hangs in there i mean I'm, the, the, this isn't a, a battle that's been won i mean it's a, something of a war of attrition at this point but the fact of the matter is the supreme court wasn't the last chapter i think the navy hoped it would be but the fact of the matter is you know they are according to a judge who ruled just a few months ago in hawaii and california they are still not in compliance with uh, the law and the national marine fisheries uh, service is still not doing its job of of uh keeping them in compliance. So uh, the battle continues, and and, uh, the whales are the fortunate beneficiaries of that. The battle continues, and it even expands out from the Navy. There's oil exploration that's using similar kinds of sonar that's having a similar kind of devastating effect on the whales. Absolutely, and I think that, you know, that's my hope in terms of this book, is that people will become more attuned to this issue, which is, you know, again, it it happens underwater. Most people aren't aware of it, but it's a very serious source of of pollution. It's been kind of uh, become known as noise pollution. But again, the the most serious uh, sources are are shipping, uh, international shipping, which is difficult to regulate, uh, has a lot of low-frequency sound generated by all those cargo ships going back and forth to China and elsewhere. And um, and then uh, air guns, which people may know is you know used in oil exploration, and they are called air cannons because they are they they are the no- loudest industrial noise in the ocean. They get up to uh, up to I think 265 decibels, and uh, which is like a gunshot, <laughs> and. Uh, and so these these are what they use to look for oil under the crust of the of the floor, and they fire these air cannons down to the the bottom, and and they drag these big arrays of air cannons across, often you know migratory paths of whales, and they fire every six seconds for hours and days at a time, and you can imagine if you're a whale and that's you're an endangered whale and that's your feeding ground or your mating ground, uh, what the effect of that can be. This also is more than just an American problem. You talk about the story with the Italian Navy and the, the whales that washed up uh, on a Greek island. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, uh, the world's navies are training everywhere, including the U.S. Navy. And there was an incident uh, certainly a year ago in Crete with the U.S., Greek, and uh, Israeli island uh, navies and uh, you know these recur. And I think the Navy, the U.S. Navy, to its credit, has has gone a long way towards coming into compliance with with the US laws and particularly on US uh, in US waters and the navy has bases and training ranges all up and down the east coast and the west coast in Hawaii and in those areas they're much more in compliance they're much closer to being in compliance than they ever have been um, however the same unfortunately can't be said for for their exercises abroad and and that's a not insignificant portion of the exercises that they the training exercises they do what is the sense of how this is going to play out at this point? Well, I my I'll tell you my sense of mm-hmm. having you know watched this legal and 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 scientific and and, and political ultimately uh, story play out over the last uh, ten years as I've been covering it for eight years. Um, I think that it's ultimately going to the solution is going to have to be a political one. I think at a at a point when you get to this sort of uh, standoff in the courts, which is where we are, where one court says this, the other court says that, and these are judges, not scientists, and these are fairly technical issues. But um, I think 
it's ultimately going to fall to the civilian authorities, which is to say the Secretary of the Navy or the Commander-in-Chief, the President, directing the Secretary of the Navy to um, stop messing around and, and get into compliance. I was invited, interestingly, uh, by uh, the U.S. Navy War College uh, to come speak up at their symposium this spring because they see this as a case study and something they want to fix and because it's a headache for them. It's a PR headache for them. It's a legal headache. It's a resource. Every time they lose a case, they have to stop training often, um, and that's expensive and difficult. So they actually, I think, it's in the, in the Navy's self-interest to just finally come to a resolution where they're in compliance and something they can live with. And I think it's become a political battle of wills between the military and the environmentalists. And I think, you know, both on either side wants to surrender in that fight. So I think it could be resolved from, from um, the political leadership. And that probably, I hope, will be the resolution and sometime soon. And maybe there will be a, you know, an out-of-court settlement. Uh, we'll see. Joshua Horwitz. The book is War of the Whales, a true story. It is just out in paperback. It's a winner of a Ped Literary Award. It is my pleasure to have Joshua here on the program. Josh, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.